Welcome to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast, hosted by the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association. We provide you with up-to-date information on health topics geared towards the Orthodox Jewish community. This podcast content is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice or as a substitute for the medical advice of a physician. My name is Elisa Minkin. I'm a general pediatrician, and I'm also the co-chair of the Jewish Orthodox Women's Medical Association, or JOMA Preventative Health Committee. And I'm really excited to be here today with Yafi Lavova. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Yes, that was perfect. Oh, good. Awesome. <laughs> Yafi is a registered dietitian nutritionist. And that's really important to know, by the way, um, to have that registered dietitian degree is important to look for. When you're looking for a nutritionist, I, I strongly believe that, and I only use registered dietitians when I refer to nutritionists, which I do every single day. Um, she's also a twin mom, and she's passionate about providing nutrition education for pregnant or breastfeeding women, help with nutrition for colicky or fussy babies, and help with the initial food introduction, which, as we know, does not always go so smoothly. So it's really a wide range, a wide spectrum of people that you're working with, which is super, super awesome. Um, she graduated magna cum laude with, with a bachelor's of science in nutrition and dietetics from Arizona State University in 2010 and went on to complete a dietetic internship at Iowa State University. So I'm going to let Yafi talk more about what she does rather than go through her whole bio, but I'm just going to give you a little highlights because we've got like a whole bunch of cool things that she does. And I'm going to just give you the highlights and give her a chance to, to talk about what she does. Um, it's important to know that she works from an intuitive eating and health at every size philosophy. And we did do a, um, a podcast earlier, my very first one with, with Gila Glassberg on intuitive eating. So you can check that one out if you want to learn more about intuitive eating. And um, I am going to not read more from my list. I'm going to just give a little bit more of an intro and in saying that as a pediatrician, I deal with this every single day, pretty much with every single visit. It is probably the most common um, set of issues that I deal with feeding and weight issues and babies and children. Um, and it's good to know that you, um, Yafa, you work with um, women who are pregnant, expecting, I guess, probably maybe even planning to have babies because this is something that really begins before the child is even born. And I also have to say that um, childhood nutrition is so intertwined with how we feel about ourselves as moms. It's so emotional. I mean, it's so, so emotional. And I will tell you that this is very personal for me as a mom. Um, I'm very open about it. I have an adult daughter with autism who had particularly horrific um, feeding issues. So today what I want to focus on out of all the great amount of things we're going to focus on, we could focus on, and I hope we can do the many talks on this, but we've got to narrow it down. So what I want to focus on is what's called weaning, which people think of as stopping nursing, but it really means moving on to solid foods from just breast um, milk or formula, covering the initial introduction to foods, picky eaters, um, technically underweight, technically overweight babies and children. Um, I'm hoping we can get to sensory and oral motor and other challenges that go above and beyond typical issues like my daughter had. So I'm going to stop talking and give you a chance. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Your organization sounds like something I would really want to be involved with. Uh, so when we're talking about weaning, the first thing that I like to address is that 
the confusion between what it means for breastfeeding and what it means for solid foods is the difference between British English and American English. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure where the Canadians fall, to be honest. <laughs> but in, in British English, weaning means food introduction. Mm -hmm. In American English, weaning means cessation of breastfeeding. Mm -hmm. And so that causes a lot of confusion because you're using the same words for the same child, for the same time frame. And we're talking about two very different things that are not as linked as we might believe. So when you start introducing a baby to solid foods, it's going to be around six months of age. I really like to go by the readiness signs and I'm a big fan of baby led weaning or mm -hmm. baby led feeding, however, um, however you go for it. But I also advocate for purees. It's, it's a mixed bag. You can I love choose. it. Yeah. Let's stop for a second and talk about baby led weaning is because that, that is a very specific, um, almost a fad if you do it in the most extreme. Right. And that's what we want to avoid. We want to mm -hmm. avoid extremes in parenting. And there are even rumors out there that you, that if you're doing baby led weaning and you give your child a bite of applesauce, that you have to go back to the breast or the bottle for two weeks with no food and start all over again. Oh my. That is not based in any kind of science. I don't know where that came from. It's got absolutely no truth to it. You can do a combination of baby led weaning and purees if that's what you're going for. You can do solid foods at home and purees when you're out for snacks or the reverse, whatever, whatever works best for you and your family, whatever you feel is safe and whatever you as the parent can feel confident doing. Because if you're if you decide to do baby led weaning based on societal pressure or that's what your friends are doing or your family, but you're sitting across from your baby scared of giving them each bite, that's not the way to go. You have to consider your own comfort. So that's the deal with, with the methods. So I really like a combination. Uh, there's a fantastic feeding therapist, Ellie Sheva Wiener, and she and I did a nap time nutrition segment on specifically that on the benefits of baby led weaning, the benefits of puree and why you can do both. And that's really the ideal. You're working on different muscles with different forms of feeding. Oh, wait, I have two questions. First of all, what's nap time yeah. nutrition? Cause I didn't get a chance to do that part of your bio. <laughs> yeah. So nap time nutrition is my YouTube channel and my podcast. Mm -hmm. The YouTube channel has 170 videos on all of the different topics that I cover. That's so and cool. The podcast has maybe around 35 or 36 episodes right now. That's been a bit slower because it's newer, but you can log on and it's free. And I have so much different content. I'm covering so many different topics there um, just for your benefit. And that's available at any point. And my other question is, let's talk about what baby led weaning is because you know and I know, but not everybody knows. <laughs> okay, so baby led weaning, it seems like it's a new thing, like a new fad, but really this is the way that women across cultures have been feeding their babies for as long as we've been having babies. It's the idea that if you wait until the six month mark when the baby is showing all of the readiness signs, and I'll get to that in a second, um, they are capable both orally and intestinally are capable of eating normal food that's prepared a little bit softer, but the idea is that they can pick up finger food. So the readiness signs are really boiled down to one, one complex action. Mm -hmm. Can the baby sit up on their own? Can they reach for food? Can they bring it to their mouth? Can they put the food in the mouth, move it to the back of the mouth and swallow effectively? If your baby meets all of those markers, that means that you're, it's safe to do baby led weaning. 
the reason why we got so into purees is because if you look at the history, even just limit to the 1900s in the US, we look at the history of baby feeding and there was a time, there was a long time when it was advised to feed babies at three to four months. Mm -hmm. they're, they, they're not capable of eating finger food at that point. So we had to do purees. There was a point, I think around the 60s or 70s mm -hmm. when it was advised to feed babies on the third day of life. Oh, that early. I know my husband got food at like three weeks old. Right. And that was the advice back then based right. on the best science that we had mm -hmm. at the time. And of mm -hmm. course, when you're feeding a baby that young, you're going to need a spoon, a long skinny spoon. Mm -hmm. You're going to take a puree and put it on the back of the baby's tongue so that it goes down the throat. Now we know that babies before six months of age don't need anything besides breast milk or formula. And even from that point, from six months until 12 months, that breast milk or formula remains primary nutrition. The only I'm nutrient... going to just interject as a pediatrician yeah. here that what, what we use is, what I use is signs of readiness, but I find that, you know, a, a number of babies are ready before six months, um, that four to six months is the, is the kind of window that we use. Um, and and the other side is if you wait too long, like I do have some parents who want to wait longer than six months, um, you can go sort of out of a window of readiness. So That's a really good point yeah. because, because there was this message, um, not going to get into the controversy, but breast is best versus fed is best. And Oh no, don't stop me on that. <laughs> yeah, no. no, I have a very compassionate view on that. Both of yes. those statements are meant to support the woman. Yes, support her. We've been pressured in both directions. We've been pressured to not breastfeed and we've been pressured to not formula feed. So whichever of those statements supports your inclination and your capabilities, just go with that because that's, yeah. I have a whole nap time nutrition on that alone. Oh wow. But what I wanted to get with that is that we've been told breast milk is the perfect nutrition. And when you're talking about nutrition, mm -hmm. that has some truth to it, but there are other reasons to give babies food around that six month mark. There, there is, um, so the only nutrients that you need to get from food between six and 12 months are iron, zinc, and vitamin D. And generally we're supplementing with vitamin D just mm -hmm. because it really isn't Should in be. a lot of foods. Mm -hmm. It's not. Um, so, so we do supplement. The we, we tend to run low in vitamin D because parents ask, well, how come I, I can't take it? Because you'd have to take an enormous amount. You would have to take, according to research, 6,400 IU as a breastfeeding woman in order to make your breast milk have enough vitamin mm -hmm. D to meet the baby's needs. The thing is that a lot of people are doing that, but I strongly recommend that you do that under the guidance of a doctor. Mm -hmm. 6,400 IUs of vitamin D is very high mm -hmm. and it may be appropriate for you, but it may not be appropriate. Vitamin D is a fat soluble vitamin, which means unlike vitamin C, which will come out, um, it, it, you take as much as you need and you excrete the rest. Right, you pee it out. Soluble <laughs> vitamins, they stick around. Right. You don't want to overload your liver. Um, so just touch base with the doctor before you go that route. The American Academy of Pediatrics recommends 400 IU per mm -hmm. day until about age six, and then it goes up to 600 IU. And really, when we're talking about dosage of vitamin D, it depends on your serum level. So it's always best to get that checked, but there are general recommendations for kids. Um, anyway, that's... One of the nutrients that we need to get that is not in breast milk, sometimes it is added to formula, sometimes 
iron can be added and zinc can be added to formula. These things are not going to be in breast milk, but those are the only nutrients that we need to get that are, that are not going to be present in breast milk between the ages of six months and 12 months. So food, people say food before one is just for fun. Well, when you're looking at it through a nutrition lens, that's got some truth. But this comes back to how food needs to be introduced mm -hmm. around six months. Um, if you have some developmental delays or a baby was born prematurely, you're going to be working with someone who can evaluate that child based on that child's history. There is no way to give safe advice across the board for that issue. It needs to be evaluated by the pediatrician, by a feeding therapist, could be a dietitian, speech therapist, occupational therapist, either way. Oh, and I, I want to interject here for just a second. There are specific feeding therapists. Like it used to be that you would just get it through speech and you needed to find someone who had that expertise. Like I said, I remember this from my daughter when they didn't have that. Um, you can request feeding evaluation. You can you know, get swallow evaluations. There's all kinds of things that you can do. And again, this doesn't constitute medical advice. Definitely speak to your pediatrician. Yes, definitely. So, so food does have... It, there's a lot of meaning in food between six and 12 months. There's exposure to taste and texture. And the big thing is that you're working those oral muscles and you're learning mm -hmm. how to manipulate the tongue and the cheeks and the jaw in a way that's going to benefit future speech. And you're also exposing them to different food experiences in order to make them familiar. When you hit that 12 month mark or when your baby takes their first steps, that's when you really hit this phase that's called food neophobia. Mm -hmm. And that's when babies start to get afraid of things that are not familiar. So you use that window between six and 12 months, not necessarily for nutrition, but mm -hmm. for food exposure exactly. and for making food something positive and happy in that child's life. Mm -hmm. That is a great explanation. So let's move on to maybe that period of time, that 12 month um, period of time when you have that neophobia and explain what that neophobia is. I mean, I have been told it's like in the caveman era when children had to forage for food on their own, then they might um, come across something and they would have to be wary of new things. It's all made up. <laughs> I don't know why they do this. Well I like, the, I like the idea behind that. I'm going to make it a little bit more relatable, okay? Okay. <laughs> Everyone who's got kids or who has interacted with young kids knows that when kids get mobile, they get more curious mm -hmm. and they're more likely to pick things up and put them in their mouths. So regardless of when you're talking about, you know, Paleolithic man or you're talking mm -hmm. about, you know, <laughs> Crown Heights woman, um, <laughs> it's the same concept that a child children are curious and what i love to do is to use that curiosity to your advantage but sometimes especially when they're first taking their first steps we need to kind of mitigate risk mm -hmm. and their biological impetus to mitigate risk at that age an action that they that they feel to keep them safe is to suddenly be scared of things that are not familiar and that's food neophobia so neo new phobia fear of food fear of new food this is a normal phase, but the way that you handle it determines whether that phase is going to stick around or whether they're just going to grow out of it the same way they grew into it. And the number one thing is something that I had mentioned already is making food a positive experience, which means sitting down together as a family. Mm -hmm. It means treating your child the way you would treat a guest. Would you be in your guest's face telling them they need to have three more bites of broccoli so they can earn dessert? 
I, I don't think I'd join you at your table again if you said that to me, you know? So you want to avoid that with kids. You want to avoid being in their space or being overly animated or being overly detached. You want to sit down at the table and enjoy your food while your baby enjoys their food and have a pleasant situation. But, you know, rolling it back a little bit, because we didn't really talk about this, but introduction of the food when you're feeding the baby food, um, it's really not the same thing. Even bottle feeding, you know, um, the difference between nursing and bottle feeding is that bottle feeding, you have X amount of ounces, and there is a concept of, okay, we're going to finish two, three, four, you're kind of measuring it. Um, what I'm getting at is the ability to read the child's cues. So I'm right. going to let you take off on that one. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. And that's a great, that's great to bring that up because a lot mm. of times when you read about um, responsive feeding, mm -hmm. like division of responsibility, uh -huh. I'm a big fan <laughs> of division of responsibility, but it's generally thought that you start that at two years of age. I say you start that at two hours of age. Exactly. Babies are born with intuition. You know, we, we talked about intuitive eating, how mm -hmm. we like that. So as adults and as infants, we should be an intu intuitive eaters and children should be following division of responsibility because straight up intuitive eating is not appropriate for children. It doesn't have the, the boundaries built in that kids need to thrive. But when you have a, an infant, we feed on demand. Mm -hmm. There were certain books out about scheduling babies. And those books were actually pulled from the shelves by the American Academy of Pediatrics because it resulted in babies who were failure to thrive. Mm -hmm. They weren't growing because their parents were watching the clock rather than watching their signs. My grandma used to tell me about that, how painful that was. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So while, while it's important to feel like you have some semblance of control over your life, it is more important to be responsive in your feeding to an infant. They are born knowing, I feel hungry. I feel full. Of course, they can't get the nutrition themselves, but they can communicate with you. And that is the instruction manual that your child is born with. Mm -hmm. And the best thing you can do as a parent is to reinforce to your infant, to your child, to your toddler, that their, their body signals are valuable and should be listened to, that their hunger is a valuable signal and we need to honor it, and that their fullness is a valuable signal and we need to honor it. The best way you can do that for an infant is feeding on demand. Mm -hmm. A lot of people believe that anytime a baby cries, you should bring them to the breast or give them a bottle. You know what? They're going to tell you if that's not the right answer. If you try to give a baby a bottle and they're crying because they're sitting in a dirty diaper, they're going to turn their face away. They're going to clamp their mouth and you will know that that wasn't the answer, that it's something else. Although I do have to say that there are babies who are colicky or refluxy, and those do sometimes feed when they're not hungry as a sort of self-medication, and they mm -hmm. can get overfed, and it can make a vicious cycle. So again, definitely something to talk to your pediatrician about. But I want to go back to, I just first want to make the point that that nursing or, or bottle feeding on demand becomes also when you're feeding the baby, if you're not doing pure baby-led weaning, if you're feeding a puree, um, the baby turns away, that's the sign to stop, not to finish that jar. <laughs> right. And that's, that's such a great point because a lot mm. of times we use the jar and as adults, we use this, we use the serving size, we use the mm -hmm. weight of our meal, we use whatever Twitter is saying that day to determine how much we're supposed to eat. And we need to be more like babies. We need right. to be more in touch with our hunger and say, I'm hungry. I want an entire quesadilla or I'm feeling peckish. I think I'll only have half. It's using your body to guide you. 
This is what babies naturally do. Mm -hmm. If you are doing baby led weaning, your baby will determine how much they want and that's it. If you're doing spoon feeding, as you mentioned, when they turn their head away, we respect that. And when they are leaning forward, eyes connected, mm -hmm. or looking at the spoon and they're opening their mouths, you give them another bite. And you know what? Sometimes that does mean you're going to open another jar of baby food or go back and get something else. It's important to listen to the signals that your child is giving to you about their hunger, because by responding to that, you're teaching them to listen to their own body. Mm -hmm. And that, that's good not only for nutrition and growth and development, but it's good for building confidence, which is not only valuable at the table, but that will be valuable in the classroom, on the playground, in the boardroom. Mm, assertiveness. <laughs> Yeah. But also enjoyment. Yes. Right. Yes. I mean, you want them from the beginning to enjoy it. And not all kids are good eaters. Like I said, I went through hell with this. So I can yeah. tell you that. And, you know, you mentioned division of responsibility. I want to go back to that because, again, you and I know what that is. Mm -hmm. There's a book by Ellen Satter that was written many, many years ago. And again, I'm an older parent and I used it for my kids. It must be 30 something years old. This book may be 40. Um, but Again, it's called How to Get Your Child to Eat, But Not Too Much. I mean, her, her main book, she's written a number um, of them, and I recommend it every single day. It is just as um, relevant. Um, but that concept of division of responsibility of labor, of feeding, means that it is your job to offer healthy meals at appropriate times. It is your ch child's job to eat what they want to or not. And that leads to parents going, but they're going to starve. Or over so here, Yeah. So here's the thing. There, division of responsibility is great because it's, it's the midway between the parent who says, clean your plate, mm -hmm. and the parent who says, well, what do you feel like having to a two-year-old? Mm -hmm. So division of responsibility is, I, I love your description. I usually say the parent is in charge of what is being served and where it's being served and mm -hmm. when it's being served. Mm -hmm. The child is in, char in charge of whether they're eating and how much, mm -hmm. and sometimes the pace up as well. Mm -hmm. But what you as the parent do is you determine ahead of time, this is what's on the table. And the child gets to decide from everything that's on the table what they want to eat and how much. And the caveat to that that really is the bridge is that you are always going to include a safe or familiar item. A lot of times that's a carbohydrate. It's a bread, beige, right? Pasta, Rice. It's a beige food. <laughs> <laughs> right. It, it is often a beige food. Yeah. That's, White, yellow. That's fine. that's fine because it, it because to the parent who says, well, my child will only eat bread or pasta, these foods are fortified. I don't want to fall back on that for a permanent for permanent nutrition. That's not mm -hmm. a good crutch, but this is this is a bridge. When you first start this, yes, your child might only eat bread for a week. But that's that's only dinner. It's fine. That bread has some protein in it. That bread has fiber and has it's it's fortified with B vitamins, with folate, um, well, folic acid anyway. That's a whole other topic. Right. But it does have benefits. A serving of pasta has the same amount of protein as an egg. So when we start thinking about things and we, we take it out of its social media current pop nutrition right. <laughs> concept of like, this is bad food. It's not bad food. It's not, it does have benefits. Everyone is going to be okay, but that's the bridge. And division of responsibility means that the parent has set appropriate boundaries by determining when and where and what of the meal. And within those boundaries, the child can have five pieces of bread 
or you can have a piece of bread and a piece of chicken and some peas, whatever you've got on the table, but they decide and that's the way that you can give them power. The thing about parenting is that there are certain points in the day when your child is going to fight you. Getting dressed, mm -hmm. taking a shower, potty training or changing the diaper, brushing their teeth and eating. Mm -hmm. These are main times of the day when your child is gonna fight you. Why? Because they theoretically could take control. A kid's life is completely out of their control. Their activities, their food, everything is completely out of their control. They're going to take power when they can. And if you turn it into a fight, it will be a fight. But you know what? It takes two to tango. And if you present the food in a neutral way and include a safe dish, and then allow your child to decide what they're taking, whether they eat it or not, and how much they eat, there are going to be far fewer arguments. Yeah, and you know what I've seen? I've seen children who, instead of weaning, and when I say weaning, I mean the British way, you know, onto a diet of not just formula or breast milk, they're still at the age of one having 32 ounces a day, which is a lot, and they're barely eating. And then the parents say, but they barely eat. And it becomes a vicious cycle of, well, they haven't given them a chance to even get hungry because right. they're so afraid that they haven't been nourished enough. So I think, you know, we have to have enough faith in our children. I know that there was a study, and I don't know if it was um, debunked, it wasn't a good study or not, but I remember hearing that there was a study that they took children and they actually like put them in a lab. This was before like you <laughs> had ethical constraints. And they found that over the course of, I think, a day or a week um, that they actually got, they seemed to live on air, but somehow these children were actually meeting the requirements over a longer period of time. Yes. Yeah. And that's a really good point. Nutrition is a marathon, not a sprint. Your mm -hmm. child will not meet their nutrition needs at one meal or even in one day. They meet their needs over the course of a few days. The study that you're mentioning, that was, I believe, done in I, 1957 is sticking in my head, but it was definitely in the UK because mm -hmm. the foods that the kids were offered were things that we don't generally eat in the United States. It was right. a lot of organ meats yeah. and foods that are not common to the American diet. And so that's, it's, it's a little bit difficult. And as you mentioned, it's difficult to replicate that study because of ethics. Right, they kept children so, in a lab. We don't do that anymore. Right, children in a lab. But the thing is with nutrition in general, we run into a lot of ethics issues when mm -hmm. doing studies. And that's why there's a whole lot of arguing and we don't get a whole lot of, of new information. The, the recommended daily intake, for example, was experiments done on prisoners also in the 50s and those were, those were white men. Mm -hmm. Other ethnicities were not represented. Women were not represented. And we can't redo these studies to get better data because it's not ethical. Right. So we're really at an impasse with some of this stuff. But yeah, it, it has been proven in different ways over time that kids, when offered a variety of food, they eat all bread at one meal. And then they eat all carrots at another meal. And then they eat like... But if you look at their intake over time, they do meet their needs. And that, that's been pretty consistent. Right. Or they go on food jags where they seem to eat one food for every meal. Yes. And yeah. if you don't get too you know, caught up in it and you're lucky and they get one that has a lot of other nutrients in it. And, and this is why I'm also fine with parents giving their kids a multivitamin. Mm -hmm. I, I'd rather them get it from food. I really would, but I think that psychologically there is a benefit to that and that the parents can say, okay, well, they didn't eat all their nutrition nutrients today, but they had their vitamin. Yeah. 
it's meant as insurance. It's meant as mm-hmm. a backup. Mm-hmm. And if it makes the parents feel more confident about the nutrition, that's great. That's great. You shouldn't rely on it, but it's great to have it. I have multivitamins. Sometimes I even remember to give them to my kids. Um, <laughs> it's not good about it. <laughs> but they're there, when, they're there when we need them. You know, cold and flu season comes around or maybe there's a pandemic or something. Um, it makes you feel a little more confident. And the truth mm-hmm. is that when parents feel confident, they're going to be better parents because they're going to spend less time stretched, stressing out. And nutrition is a huge point of stress for so mm-hmm. many parents. So if giving your kids a, a quality multivitamin makes you feel more confident, go for it. Discuss with your doctor whether or not you need added iron. Some right. kids and, need added iron. Some kids mm-hmm. don't. And there may be different ways to get it in because you don't want to battle over the getting the vitamin in. Right. Well, there are a oh, lot of vitamins now that are tasty. Yeah. Yeah. I have to hide my probiotics because the kids will just eat them all. (laughs) And we're not talking about gummy vitamins. (laughs) It's not right now. No. I I have not seen a quality vitamin that comes in gummy form. It might be. I mean, I haven't looked it up recently. There's so many. And the kosher vitamins, by the way, there were amazing online kosher vitamin sources where you could spend all day, you know, it's like a rabbit hole of types of vitamins. And so it's good to know. Um, Yeah. I've noticed that in um, like koshervitamins.com, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are not sponsored like, by them. No, we're not sponsored by anything. There are no disclosures here. <laughs> yeah, no disclosures. But um, koshervitamins.com does have a, a wide variety of high-quality mm-hmm. kosher vitamins. It's really nice to have a place to just go and buy vitamins because it wasn't always that way. Right. No, it's a great resource. Um, so back to the neophobia. I think that another important point about the neophobia is that what happens is parents go, oh, they don't like vegetables. Yeah. Why? Because they've had it once, twice, five times. How many times does it take before we yeah. should give up? <laughs> never. This is always a fun conversation. Okay. First, never give up. Right. Never give up. So the thing is that it takes between 15 and 40 exposures for your neurotypical child. This is a child who does not have feeding issues, who does not have obstacles that need to be seen by a feeding therapist. For your your healthy child, neurotypical child, it takes 15 to 40 exposures. 40? It depends on the research you look at. Some says some of the research says 15 and some says I've 40. I've heard 15. The thing is that wow. also... It's also how we define exposure. Mm -hmm. So some people will think um, giving, let's say, boiled broccoli. I love broccoli. I don't generally love boiled vegetables. (laughs) My favorite is garlic (laughs) roasted broccoli. Yes, yes. It's amazing. I could eat it all day. But um, (laughs) I'm not sure my husband would like that. But so an exposure doesn't have to be boiled broccoli at every meal until the child finally relents. Because you know what? I'm not ever going to relent to, <laughs> right, to no. having like soggy brownish broccoli. It's not appealing to me. If you like it, good, more power to you. I like mine crisp and green. Right. The thing is that you can serve it in different ways and all of that counts as exposure. You give roasted broccoli, you give raw broccoli, you give broccoli kugel, you give a broccoli salad, you have um, broccoli is a decoration on something else. All of broccoli that is trees. Make it broccoli fun. trees. <laughs> so I was going to get to that next. So also exposure is food play. Now the previous generation was told, don't play with your food. And we rebel against that. Play with your food. It's all about having a friendly conversation with what's on your plate. Okay. So for some kids, 
it is a fairly intimate act to pick up something that is not part of your body and put it into your body, to chew it and swallow it and bring it into your bubble and your person. When you think of it that way, it's really intimidating. And so these kids need a more gentle exposure to it. And that means sometimes playing with their food. It means saying, oh, I have all these broccoli trees. Can you make a broccoli forest? How do you think a dragon would eat broccoli? Can you show me? And then, and then if, you, if you watch videos, you go on YouTube and look up goldfish eating broccoli. And it's just a goldfish in someone's tank at home nibbling on broccoli. And guess what? That's an exposure. And that's a fun exposure because mm -hmm. then you serve the broccoli and you can say, hey, remember we watched that video? How did the goldfish eat the broccoli? And maybe it's not going to result in a bite. Maybe it's just going to be the child is going to pick it up and kind of kiss it. But you know what? That's exposure too. Right. And can you imagine if you took away all pressure and you didn't even say just take a bite? Right. What if you didn't say anything? What if you just played? It's the opposite of how we grew up. Exactly. Exactly. And I advocate that. And I, I have a friend, actually, um, every time I do some kind of talk, it turns into a commercial for her stuff. But if you look up Arielle Danny Leibovitz on Amazon, she has fantastic books that are geared for kids, just food facts and fun things about how they grew and how you store them and how you can cook them. And did you know, and all of it, it's amazing. And you can have that at the table and don't tell your child to eat the broccoli. Just turn to the page in the book on broccoli and say, wow, did you know that broccoli comes from here? And this is how it comes to our shelves. And did you know that there are 5,000 different kinds of broccoli? And it's so much fun just, just talking. And you know what? Take it even a step further. Start an herb garden. Mm. That no bite required. You start an herb garden because kids can plant the herbs they grow quickly, so there's fairly immediate gratification as opposed to a tomato plant, which might take a season to fruit, or mm. a fruit tree, which from seed will take a number of years. And you just make it fun. I teach a class in the Phoenix area when, when we're allowed to teach classes called Toddler Test Kitchen. And it's a cooking class for kids ages two through six. And it's fun to get kids in the kitchen. I, I have a book coming out, um, hopefully in December, God willing, um, all about how to get kids involved in the kitchen from 18 months and up. Oh, so fun. What's it called? Um, it is called Fun with Food Activity and Recipe Book. The, the publisher you, named it, so it's gone did, through a couple of iterations. Did you already have a book out? I do have a book out called Stage by Stage Baby Food Cookbook, and that is for uh, that's for cooking for babies. And it's got a lot wow. of information about, about that. And I also have Beyond a Bite, which is about food play at the table. And I had mentioned to you when we were emailing before, I have one coming out called Beyond a Bite Neurodiverse Edition. Oh, wow. And that is specifically, we took the, the first book that I wrote, Beyond a Bite, mm -hmm. and reformulated that to make it helpful for parents who have autistic kids and who have the the obstacles that come along with autism, and that's meant to be used as a resource alongside feeding therapy, or if you have someone who has fewer actual feeding issues that need to be directly addressed, um, you can use that as a resource on its own as well. So that is I've been doing a lot of writing. <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm blown away. I'm going to need to get this whole library from you. <laughs> 
No, this is great because I've mentioned there's a book called Just Take a Bite that is written by, I think, an occupational therapist, but it's it's about the concept of, of food chaining. So maybe you want to go into a little bit about what food chaining, but I, I honestly find that book to be a little too technical for parents. Right. Okay. So my, my co-author for Beyond a Bite Neurodiverse Edition is also an occupational therapist. Mm-hmm. They are fantastic for feeding issues and for a lot of different things. So so she would be able to talk more about food chaining, but the concept is that you have a food that's familiar mm-hmm. and you have a food that's the goal. So for example, your child likes strawberries, but not peanut butter and jelly. And so first you have strawberries as they are, and then you you change it just a little bit. Like maybe you cook the strawberries just a little bit to change the texture, but they still have their shape. And then the next time you each time you change something small about that food on the way to, so like you're doing jelly and then you're doing jelly on bread and then you're doing jelly with bread and peanut butter. And before you know it, you have peanut butter and jelly. And that's the idea of food chaining. Right. And for some children, it might be much of a longer chain. Yes. Children who are more resistant. And just to backtrack just a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, sensory issues because not even just children on the spectrum, um, who have issues with food, it's really very common. It could be, you know, children with ADHD or other developmental disorders or just children who are sensory, you know, or different sensory-wise, more um, sensory defensive, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear what your thoughts about that are. Yeah, I think that's great that you took it off the spectrum because, of course, kids on mm-hmm. the spectrum are known for having certain food issues. Mm-hmm. But I can say that as a neurotypical person myself, I have issues with certain textures. Mm -hmm. It's very common for people who don't have a diagnosis to just have, you know, you don't prefer a certain color or you don't prefer a certain texture. Mm -hmm. Some people don't like the texture of oranges, for example. I have issues with mushrooms. It's it's normal for people to have preferences. So it's, it's normal for our kids to have preferences, whether that puts them on the spectrum or not. It's important to give them the freedom to have preferences the same way we give ourselves freedom to have those preferences. Um, I think I went on a tangent there, but food is yeah, a complete, clear. Okay, food is a complete sensory mm-hmm. experience. Mm-hmm. There are we have the five senses that we're familiar with, and then there are three more that are the internal ways that we connect those senses to each other. The way that we understand what hunger and fullness are, that's one sense. And the way that we we put textures with flavors and the way that it all comes together in our heads, these are all like three different senses. So we told, we have eight senses in total and we are using every sense when we eat. Our food has sight, it has sound, it has smell, it has taste, it has temperature. And then it's got all of these other factors And so for a child who is sensory sensitive, that is a huge obstacle. When we're trying to to teach a child who has sensory sensitivities or sensory obstacles, we try to focus on one sense at a time. And that's really, really difficult when it comes to food because it really does hit all of those places. And so if you're having some difficulty with a child who maybe has limited themselves to five foods, or I think the threshold is 20, If, if your child literally has 20 foods or fewer that they will accept, it's important to touch base with a feeding therapist to identify what the underlying issue is. Why is the child rejecting so many foods? Why are there foods that the child accepted before and is now not so into? 
Sometimes it's experimentation. I remember one of my twins decided to not like blueberries and I saw it on his face when he made that decision. And I was like, dude, that's a bad call. This is a bad <laughs> decision. You're going to regret that. But I had to give him the space to make that decision. That's, that's pretty normal. But if you have a child who one food after another is dropping off of their accepted list, mm -hmm. it's important to meet with someone who can identify one-on-one -on -one with them what the issue is and how to overcome it. Right. And there's, you know, new diagnosis of restrictive food disorder um, yes. and somebody who's not just a picky eater, that threshold is of the, I don't remember the name that they called it, but it's, it's, it's really a problem. It's a problem. And you, you should also, I'm going to keep plugging the pediatrician because some of these kids have normal weight. Some of them don't. Some of them have underlying medical issues. Some of them don't. Um, so you, you need a team for this. Yes, and that's, and that's important because a lot of times people see food as medicine because Hippocrates said that. And you know what? It has been taken way out of context by mm -hmm. current, current thinking because right now we have taken that from eat an orange to prevent scurvy to every problem in your life is because of one food and solved by another. And that's not reality. Right. That, that eliminates the entire rest of the medical team. And that puts too much pressure on me personally. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it should be a team effort. We all right. have a place. And you should feel confident talking to your pediatrician about these concerns. Right. Now, back to weight. Um, you know, so I spend a lot of time talking to parents who are worried that their children weigh too much or weigh too little. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. I have a lot. <laughs> so I can just chime in. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing is that we, when we're growing up, we go to school and when we're in school, we do well on a test and we get a 95% mm. and we do badly on a test and we get 55%, right? So we are conditioned to think that then a number equates to how well we're doing. And so when we have children and we start looking at the growth chart, oh, my child's at 95%, I get an A. <laughs> my child's at the 50th percent or the fifth percent. I get an F. You know what? That's not how we read it. And I am sure that, that you, Dr. Minkin, do a fantastic job conversing with parents about this. A lot of times I've spoken with parents who come from the, from the pediatrician and they're concerned because they only know the number and there mm. hasn't been an explanation on what that represents. Or, or even they've been told there's a problem because the child is off the charts. Yes. So, you know, I have a couple ideas about this. First of all, there are different body types. So I have, one of the things I ask the parent is, were you the same way as a child? Or was dad the same way? And a lot of times this child may be technically off the charts, but be perfectly healthy. And again, this is not constitute medical advice. Do not tell your pediatrician your kid's fine because you heard us say it here. Um, but it's really important to know and to advocate for your child and say, hey, I was the same way. Um, he's always been this way. He's gaining and growing on his curve. Could he be okay? Um, and the same can be true for children on the opposite end. Um, so I don't just go by the chart, but I do look for a trajectory. So if I see a child who is average and has fallen to the 25th percentile or lower, that could be a problem because they're dropping. And the same thing with, with going up. So it, it is um, a big piece of it is, is the trajectory. I think that that's important. Um, but, you know, not to focus on the numbers, but not to dismiss them either, because they're a major indicator of how your child is doing. They're not irrelevant. I think that those, yeah, those numbers are very important, mm -hmm. but they're much more important to the doctor than they are to the parent. Mm -hmm. Because the parent doesn't need to interpret them. It's the doctor's job to interpret them and to let you mm -hmm. know 
when there's an issue. When we're talking about intuitive eating and health at every size perspective, mm -hmm. it takes weight out of the problem category and puts it in the symptom category. Mm -hmm. So we're not looking at weight to see a problem that your child weighs too much or weighs too little. We're looking at patterns. As you mentioned, if your child was born at the fifth percentile and maintains at the fifth percentile, that indicates healthy growth. And if your child was born at the 90th percentile and stays at the 90th percentile, mm -hmm. that also indicates healthy growth. And you know what, if you go to the doctor one day with five kids and all of your five kids dropped 20%, it is likely that someone accidentally knocked into the scale because for all of you kids to have a 20% drop in their weight. That's, that's also why we don't rely on one single data point. Right. And, and ask for a remeasure. I mean, this is actually a very important point. Ask for a remeasure. I remeasure all the time. I remeasure yeah. and reweigh all the time because those numbers are important to me and they better be accurate. And they're not always. Right. They're not always accurate. And so that's why that's why you can ask for a redo on the weight or the height. You can say, this is one data point. Let's see what happens next time. I've seen a lot of growth charts that have one little hiccup. That's called an outlier. Mm -hmm. It means that there was something off that day. It doesn't mean anything for your child's health. We don't change a course of action based on one data point alone. And so it's important to notice the patterns. Um, if you have twins, for example, they're generally going to be smaller, at least when they're born. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they're going to be below the growth chart and they're not on it. But although you can't do that online, you can't plug in their weights and see it on the growth chart, the doctor's office will have a more sensitive growth chart that can plot those points and see patterns. Right. And they should be putting in, by the way, most people are using electronic medical records now and it, it can convert if you put the gestational age in, I had preemies the other day. I'm like, how are they so low? And that's because nobody put in however many weeks gestational age. And then it corrected and it was clear. And, you know, parents do like to hear that their kids are doing well once you take into account, you know, those factors. There are certain children, for example, with Down syndrome who really have supposed to have their own curves that they follow. Turner syndrome, Russell Silver, you know, which is a, um, a disorder where their children are very small, um, have their own curves that are normal for them. So that's important that your doctor know that. And by the way, there are different curves for formula-fed and breastfed children. And I'm pretty sure my EMR uses the formula-fed one. <laughs> so right, a lot of them, a lot of them default to the formula-fed yeah. one, and that's also an issue in the doctor's office because mm -hmm. if you look at the paper growth charts, a lot of them will have the formula company on the top, and you know that's an advertisement. <laughs> right, right. They're they're manipulating things a little bit, but whether you're whether you're breastfed or formula fed, the growth is not going to be that much different. And so if you plotted both on the same growth chart, you'd still be looking at the trajectory. So it doesn't make, a, like you're still seeing the, the, the overall pattern. So it's not as big a deal as, as you mentioned, charting a child who has Down syndrome on mm -hmm. standard chart. That would be a problem because it wouldn't show growth the way that it would otherwise. But I think there is actually a CDC versus World Health Organization, and one is yes. accounting for breastfeeding, and that's not the default. But anyway, you're yes. right. It doesn't make as huge a difference. I've had parents whose children are, are not getting enough calories, which we're really not going to be able to get into, um, who say, well, you're just using the wrong chart, and, and really the kids do need more calories. So that, right. that can happen. You know, you can have yes. a child who's not gaining because they're not getting enough calories. And I have to say... Then we talk about what's called failure to thrive, and it's really going to be beyond the scope of what we can get into today. Um, a lot of times parents want their children to um, get blood tests and get worked up for this. And this is also true, by the way, for the children who are um, 
too heavy or gaining weight too fast, right? Just to kind of, you know, stereotype it. They're also, it must be their thyroid. Um, the vast majority of the time, these kids are getting too little calories and they're not gaining enough or too many calories. And that's why they're gaining too rapidly. You can come up with your nutritionist. Yeah, <laughs> well, we, and we have to look at, we have to look at why, mm -hmm. you know, because, because for, let's say that there are some kids who are underweight. Mm -hmm. It could be because they're, they have a feeding difficulty. They have mm -hmm. tongue tie, they have lip tie, they have mm -hmm. a mm -hmm. sensory issue that hasn't been addressed. It could be because there's too much pressure at the table. Mm -hmm. If you're at the table and you're being force fed, you're going to stop eating as soon as you can mm -hmm. because you want to, you want to minimize that, that dynamic with the parent where they're trying to force feed you. Mm -hmm. And the same with a child who is gaining weight rapidly. Is there pressure at the table? Are they learning, I need to listen to mommy instead of listen to my body? In general, we want our kids to listen to us as parents. But at the table, we want them to listen to their bodies. Mm -hmm. And so there is, so sometimes a child could be underweight. Sometimes a child could be growing more rapidly than expected because of pressure at the table. And if you step back and institute division of responsibility mm -hmm. and allow your child the power to determine what they're eating from what's on the table, and how much they're eating, mm -hmm. sometimes these issues will correct themselves. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you do need some further help from an occupational therapist or um, a, a different kind of feeding therapist as well to identify what that is. Mm -hmm. And for the children that um, are underweight, um, a lot of times I see the parents are determined to feed them beyond the time that they should be feeding them. I mean, it's like the opposite of, of baby led weaning. They're walking around with their two-year-old or their three-year-olds and the child leaves the table and they're running around with a spoon oh, yeah. just to do that. And that's a whole work just to, you know, go back to that division of responsibility and say, no, it's not your job to feed them anymore. Right. They can feed themselves. And it's, you know, it takes a leap of faith, I think. It does. It does take a leap of faith. And what you want to do when you're first starting out with division of responsibility is to focus on your child's favorite foods so mm -hmm. that you're not just showing them something unfamiliar and changing the routine all at once. You know what? Your child likes pizza. Fine. First night of division of responsibility is pizza. Mm -hmm. Great. And the next night, maybe it's spaghetti. You're going to start with your child's favorites while you ease into the change of routine so that they can understand. Now I'm in charge. I'm going to eat as much as I want to eat. I'm going to stop when I'm done. And it's also important to remember that children are super intuitive and a lot of parents will complain that their toddler won't eat dinner unless they force them. But you know what? It is healthy for a child to skip dinner if they have had enough calories that day and their right. body will tell them that. Right. Their body will tell them. Right. I actually tell parents, toddlers typically have one good meal, one bad meal, and one no meal. I made it up. I like that. <laughs> but I just say it to get them through the idea that not every meal is an event. It's not a major event. Yeah. And that, that's okay. And let them have that favorite food on the table, like we said before. So it's not, oh, today is boiled broccoli and spinach and liver or whatever. I'm being extreme here, but you know, something, all things tasty. they hate, all things yeah. they hate. And that, that's normal. Um, so for the opposite end, for children um, who seem to be gaining too rapidly, um, I have to say that I get frustrated when parents come in and they say, well, what should they weigh? right in front of their child. Or they turn oh. to their child and they say, um, you have to stop eating all that junk food. Ouch, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, ouch. Um, 
Yeah, I just got a, a wave of nausea with that one. <laughs> so that's the thing. Okay, when we talk to children about nutrition, we have to keep it 100% positive. Mm-hmm. Same to a five-year-old, you shouldn't be eating so much junk food. It's completely pointless. That child has no money. That child has no car. That child did not go to the store and buy the, the quote-unquote junk food and eat it. That child was given that food to eat. And so when we have a child who's very interested in sweets, there are different ways to go about it. Um, Honestly, I believe in being proactive with sweets and sitting and enjoying them with your child because it neutralizes it. Mm -hmm. There There have been studies that show that when we put a forbidden label on food, we perceive it as tastier, that it actually tastes better. It lights up more spots in our brain when we eat it with that forbidden fruit label on it. So we want to avoid that. We don't want to, we don't want to criticize what our kids are eating because number one, they didn't decide to eat that and they didn't buy it and they have no power to go to the store and buy a truckload of broccoli. That's not within their power. So we shouldn't put that responsibility on them. It is our responsibility as the adult to offer a variety of food, offer it in a neutral and safe way and to also be a little proactive. You want to have an ice cream party? We are all sitting down together, eating ice cream together, enjoying it together. Nobody had to earn it. No counting bites to get there. It's just because it's fun to have ice cream. A lot of times when we look at health, we define it purely by the physical. And that misses such a huge area of health. We need to look at the mental aspect of health and social and and spiritual health as well. It's not just what you put in your body and what comes out of your body. It is your connection with it, your connection with yourself and with your body, your connection with your parents and with your kids. It's so important to evaluate all aspects of health. And so when we say, don't eat junk food, we really limit our view of health to purely the physical. Yeah, you know what, eat junk food. Also don't call it junk food, (laughs) call it dessert, enjoy it together offer a variety of food that hits all food groups. That's just, kids Kids are naturally curious and that's what got us into trouble with the food neophobia and that's what's going to get us out of that food neophobia. You appeal to a child's natural curiosity and their natural wonder of the world around them and show everything is positive. Everything is, everything is wonderful. Everything is awesome to quote my child's favorite song of the moment. Oh no, that's not gonna get out of my head now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, But I do have to make the point that we, you know, when we approach a child with with, um, a feeding issue, it's in the context of the whole family, and especially a child who's struggling with their weight, with, you know, choosing foods that might be, you know, more calorie dense or not as nutritious, if they're available, that's not their responsibility, it's the parents. Now, that does bring up the issue with with, um, children who are um, being taken care of by relatives, like, say, grandma, the candy lady, aka... um, I've done that myself. <laughs> or children who go back and forth between homes, you know, children who have parents who are divorced. And that's a classic scenario I see. Well, you better tell that to dad because he's given them all the junk. Um, and the, it's just a plea to parents to work together on this and not to, you know, just focus on the child as the problem. It, it's the child in the context of the family. And I'm going to have to end here because I know we've talked for longer than I said we would. And I told you we could talk forever and ever. And I really thank you so much for doing this with me. And I hope we can do this again because we have many topics to cover. We do. And I'm up for it anytime. Thank you so much.
Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at Joma underscore org. Check out our website, www.joma.org, that's J-O-W-M-A, dot org, or email us at health at joma.org.